right, go ahead and be seated. And please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16. And again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. One of the marks of maturity is the ability to appreciate and comprehend nuance. When you're a kid, everything is fairly black and white. Uh, sugar is good, and so is happiness. Vegetables are bad, so is sadness. Uh, there are good guys, and there are bad guys, and the good guys always do good, and the bad guys are always bad. As you get older, though, you begin to realize that the right answers to the questions we ask are a bit more complex than this. Yes, sugar tastes good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for you. Vegetables may not provide the immediate payoff that you're looking for, but in the long run, you discover they'll actually make you feel better overall. There are forms of happiness, you discover, that are fleeting and shallow. And there are types of sadness which are rich and meaningful. You even learn that you can cry tears of joy and that joking can function as a kind of coping mechanism to deal with tremendous pain. You discover that even your heroes have their darker sides, that no man is completely perfect save for one. And that even the very worst of sinners often still have people in their life that they love. And that oddly enough, some of the greatest evils are actually performed with the very best of intents. This is all part of getting older. As a person's understanding of the world grows, as their reasoning develops, they begin to discover that there is far more complexity to the world than what they first imagined. They begin to see that there is more than just one way of looking at an issue. Now, of course, that's not to say that all those ways are right. The evil that's performed with good intent, for instance, is still evil. It's still sin. Still, there's a depth of understanding that develops that enables the individual to perceive that a person can both commit evil while intending to do good at the same time. Whereas before, they might have believed that evil could only be performed out of malice and not, say, ignorance or fear. Just in the past couple of weeks, I got to see this kind of growth play out with one of my sons. Uh, we were standing in the kitchen uh, listening to a piece of uh, classical music. And as I understood it at the time, the piece was about Icarus. You guys are familiar with Icarus, the guy who put wings on and tried to fly to the sun. And as I understood it at the time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm asking my son about this piece, and I'm asking him if he, if he knew who Icarus was. And he said yes. And uh, the name of this song was The Fall. And it had this very eerie sound to it that made you picture Icarus falling from the sky. And then towards the end of the piece, it becomes kind of hopeful almost triumphant, even as it's still spiraling 
to the ground. I told my son to listen closely to this. And then at the end of the song, there was this big boom in silence. I asked my son, what do you think that bum stood for? He said he, he hit the ground. I said, right. Now, why do you think the composer made the choice to make it sound kind of triumphant there at the end? He's spiraling to the ground. Where's the victory in that? And he paused. And then he said back to me with tears welling up in his eyes because he still flew. <laughs> I can tell you my heart about leaped out of my chest in that moment. I was so proud of him. Now I'm standing there, I'm almost standing there right now, starting to cry with him, going, yes, son, yes, you got it. And he's trying to hide his tears. And I'm telling him, no, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of it. That's what's supposed to happen with good music. It can help you understand something like the feeling of triumph in the face of death without having gone through it yourself. And then, of course, we spent some time discussing whether that feeling was the right one in this particular example and so on. Listen, I tell you, the reason I was so excited, so proud, was because it demonstrated that my son was growing up. He was dem demonstrating the ability not only to understand what was happening in the piece, but he could empathize with the paradoxical feeling of triumph in the face of defeat of failure to the point that it moved him to tears. Again, this is one of the marks of maturity. The ability to comprehend and interact with nuance, with complex thoughts and feelings. And did you know that it's no different with right and wrong? When you were a child, you were probably given a set of rules to live by at some point, by at least someone, be it a a parent or a teacher or a pastor, you were told things like, keep your hands to yourself. Raise your hand before speaking. Don't get out of your seat without permission. And then as you got older, those rules went away. Well, I mean, why is that? Is that, is that because you learned things like self-control? I mean, sure, that's one reason. You learned how to govern yourself, and so you no longer needed people to tell you what to do. Another reason, though, is because you also develop the ability to reason and to think in terms of nuance. It's not just that you learn how to keep your hands to yourself. It's that you also learn that there are times when it's acceptable to touch someone else and times when it's not. There are times when you need to let someone speak and times when it's acceptable to interrupt. Times when you need to stay seated in your chair, times when it's acceptable to get up. It makes me think of Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 3. I'd imagine you already know them very well. He says, for everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. 
That's the wisdom of Solomon speaking, right? War isn't always the wrong course of action, nor is peace always the right one, correct? It all depends on the circumstances. It all depends on the situation. This is what a person begins to learn with maturity. When you were a child, you were told simply, don't hit, right? And yet, depending on your upbringing, you may have been taught not to hit with a good swat on the rear. Is that because your parents were hypocrites? No, it was, it was because they already understood there's a time to strike and a time not to strike. It's not just one way. The circumstances, the context matters. Jesus understood this. Did you know that? Jesus understood this principle. You can probably expect that he did. After all, no one has ever been wiser than Jesus, not even Solomon. But did you know that Jesus didn't always think in terms of strict absolutes? In fact, this is partly what tended to get him into so much trouble with the Pharisees. The Pharisees did tend to think in terms of absolutes, in terms of very black and white rights and wrongs, and Jesus didn't. He challenged their notions of right and wrong. And they took this to mean that Jesus was a lawbreaker, that he didn't actually care about righteousness. Of course, Jesus did care about righteousness. It's just that he understood that you couldn't codify righteousness in the ways that the scribes and the Pharisees did. He understood that if you wanted to attain to true righteousness, then you had to go beyond mere law-keeping and instead begin to think in terms of the intent, in terms of the principles that the law is built on. This is partly what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then again in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven before going on to eviscerate their very technical, legalistic understanding of the law. He was telling them, I'm not lowering the bar with how I'm doing things. I'm raising it. You need to look deeper than the mere in letter of the law to the principles that undergird and support that law if you're ever going to attain to the kind of righteousness that God is looking for. That's why he says, not just murder, but anger condemns you. Not just adultery, but lust condemns you. It's because the righteousness that God requires can't be captured in a strict system of do's and don'ts. The do's and the don'ts may be structured by the kind of righteousness that he's looking for. They may even point to the righteousness that he's looking for in this sense, but they cannot in and of themselves be the fulfillment of it. I think of this principle whenever I come across the Sabbath controversies. Matthew 12, the disciples are picking heads of grain and eating them. The Pharisees say to Jesus, this isn't lawful to do on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say? Does he attack their legalistic reading of the law? Does he say, what are you talking about? The law says don't work, have a day of rest. This isn't working. They're just eating. They're not trying to earn a living by doing this. No, that's not what he says. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. 
Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you and not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's a very interesting passage. Jesus says, what about David? Do you remember how the priest let him eat the bread of the presence, even though the law says he couldn't? Right? How do you explain that? Or what about the priests who work every Sabbath in the temple, even though it says don't work on the Sabbath? How do you explain that? And just so you know, without getting into great detail, his point in both those instances is that while, yes, the individuals involved might be considered guilty of breaking the letter of the law, they're not guilty of breaking its intent. David, for instance, told the priests he was sent on a mission from Saul. It would appear that the priest reasoned that since Saul himself was God's anointed, God's appointed representative on the earth, that it was then entirely permissible to give the bread that had been dedicated to the priests as they served God to David and his men as they did the same on Saul's behalf. The principle was that the bread had been set apart to those dedicated in service to God. And so while David wasn't a priest, he was still permitted to eat the bread. Same with the priests on Sabbath. Sabbath was a day of dedication and devotion to God. So was it wrong for the priests to work in the temple on Sabbath, even though the Sabbath had commanded that there was to be no work? No, if anything, this was fulfilling the Sabbath. It fulfills the Sabbath to render service to God on the Sabbath. You hear there's nuance in this. The law gives a command, but Jesus is saying, but if you understand why the command is given, then it's not breaking the command when a person does what the command prohibits in order to fulfill its intent. A similar instance occurs in Matthew 15. There the scribes and the Pharisees take issue with the disciples eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus responds by saying, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me as given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. He says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophecy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You look at that passage, and Jesus is obviously taking issue with the religious leader's tendency to use the word of God to undermine the word of God, right? That's what's going on here with this whole thing about what you would have gained from me as given to God. They're taking the scripture's teaching about oaths, chiefly that we're supposed to keep the oath that we make, and they're using this to allow children to justify their refusal to help their parents financially by saying, well, if you make an oath and you give all that you have to God upon your death or something like that, then you don't have to help them. That's the main concern that Jesus has in this passage, this twisting of the word of God. But by implication, he seems to be implying that even if a child did make such an oath, they should break it in order to keep the fifth commandment. And do you know what? That's actually entirely consistent with the Old Testament. The Old Testament taught that a person should keep their oaths. But then it says if a person makes a rash oath, then they should repent of their oath-making 
by breaking their oath, in which instances it even provides a sacrifice that a person can offer for the sin that they committed in making the oath in the first place. That's more or less what Jesus is implying here as well. So when should a person break their promises? Well, never, except for when they should, except for when they were wrong in making the promise in the first place. Again, are you seeing this? There's nuance in all of this. We like rules. The Pharisees like rules, right? And you know why? It's not only because rules make righteousness more attainable by confining it to our behavior, our conduct, rather than making it a matter of the heart, which is where Jesus says true righteousness lies. It's not only because we can bend and twist rules to our own advantage, like what the Pharisees do with the oaths in Matthew 15. It's also because rules just make things simpler. Again, we give rules to children. Why? It's because it makes things simple for them. They don't have to try to understand when it's okay to get out of their chair and when it's not. Instead, they just have one thing to keep track of. Stay in your chair. And again, we do that partly because they're unable to handle any more than that. We make it simple for them so that their obedience is attainable. But do you know what the problem with rules is? It's that they also restrict righteousness. It seems to be partly Jesus' point in Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus asking him why he doesn't fast like both they and the Pharisees do. And well, now that's a complicated question. That's a complicated question made more complicated in part because John's disciples didn't fast for the same reasons that the Pharisees did. John's disciples fasted out of a sincere expectation of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees fasted out of a desire to justify themselves before men through their self-righteous law-keeping. Again, there's nuance to this. And so Jesus provides a nuanced answer. First, he says that they don't fast because it's not the time to fast. Jesus, the bridegroom, is among them. If the fasting that John's disciples do, they do in anticipation of the kingdom of heaven, then at present it's not time to fast, since what they anticipate anticipate is there among them. But then second, he says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and the worst tears made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. That's the part of the answer that has to do with the Pharisees' fasting. And again, without getting into great detail about the meaning of all the phrases in that statement here this morning, Jesus says this in reference to the coming of the new covenant. That's the new wine he's referring to, and he's saying you can't fit the this into the old structures, meaning you can't fit this into the Mosaic law since they're not compatible. It would rip the old system apart in the process. We'll actually see what Jesus means by this statement just a little later in this letter, right here in 1 Corinthians. Under the Mosaic law, there were commands put in place to restrict a person's interaction with outsiders. And these commands were put in place due to the hardness of of their heart due to the influence that the outsider might exert over that individual, perhaps even to the degree of leading them off into idolatry. 
Here in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, no, go ahead and eat with these people. Why is that? Why is that shift taking place? Well, at least one reason is because the Spirit has so transformed the heart of the believer such that they're no longer prone to be pulled into the idolatry by the unbeliever in the same way that they would have been before. Now, because of the Spirit's presence in the new covenant, God actually wants his people to go out into the world and engage the unbeliever. That's something you couldn't do under the Mosaic Covenant. Not without violating the commands of that covenant. This is what Jesus means when he says you can't put the new wine into the old wineskins without making it burst. God had put these laws on Israel that were meant to restrict their, restrict their sinfulness under the old covenant. But now that the Spirit has come, those laws were inadequate to allow the people of God to perform the proactive righteousness that God had in store for them. If you want to think of it like this, if one of my sons starts to hit the other, I might tell him, you sit in this chair until I tell you to get out of it. And when I tell him that, that might restrict his sin. It might restrict his ability to harm his brother. The problem is that as long as he sits in that chair, he can't perform all the righteousness that I'd like him to perform towards his brother. He can't love his brother while he sits in that chair, not in the same way he could if he's allowed out of it. So the rule restrains sin. But in restraining sin, it also has the collateral effect of restraining the full expression of righteousness as well. This is the problem with rules. They may make things simple, but in making things simple, they can actually inhibit an individual from seeing the full expression of righteousness that God calls them to. This means that if you're going to be a mature Christian, then you need to learn to advance beyond mere rule-keeping. You need to learn how to think about issues beyond just simply, it's always right to do this or it's always wrong to do that. And listen, I know it probably makes you nervous to hear me say that. If so, bear with me here a minute. I think you'll see where I'm going with all of this. I'm not advocating. Let me just say up front, I'm not advocating for some kind of moral relativism. When I say that, I'm not saying there are not universal rights and wrongs. There most definitely are universal rights and wrongs. I'm just saying that the various kinds of situations we face in life are not flat. They're not all the same. Meaning, while the absolutes may be universal, that's not to say that the various circumstances we face are. And it's that nuance and context that is going to make the universal absolutes do some funny things. Again, to take it back to the rules we give to children, there are times when it's okay to get out of your chair and times when it's not. So what determines when is the right time and when is the wrong time? It's how the universal absolutes apply to the specifics of that context. Again, the showbread is supposed to be reserved for those who are dedicated to God. And while that generally means that it should be reserved for the priests alone, there are some circumstances where it can be given to someone other than the priest and it still not violate God's intent. I know that probably sounds confusing and perhaps a little scary. But listen, if you're going to learn how to stop thinking like a child, if you're going to learn how to become mature in your thinking, you have to learn how to do it. If our church is going to mature, if it's going to be a church that doesn't just simply ape the legalism of the Pharisees, 
then we must learn how to do it. Now, I realize this is a rather long sort of introduction to our passage here this morning, but understand I do it in order to set you up for what we're about to encounter in this text. What we're dealing with here this morning is an incredibly controversial topic, and that's the matter of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This is a topic that's not only incredibly relevant, given the prevalence of divorce and remarriage in our culture, and even within the church, but it's also one in which there's been an incredible amount of ink spilled. There's a lot of back and forth on this issue about what the Bible's position is on this topic. And what I want you to understand up front is that in order for you to grasp what Paul says here, you're going to have to abandon this thought that wants to codify everything down into a nice, neat set of rules. And you're instead going to have to embrace this idea of nuance, of thinking in terms of principles rather than a written code, of looking at this issue from multiple different angles, understanding that there may not be a one-size-fits-all solution to a problem as complex and varied as what we're dealing with here this morning. If I could put it like this, I've been wrestling with this discussion for several years now in depth at various levels. And the more I've wrestled with this, the more I've come to the conclusion that there's a reason why there's so much confusion on what the Bible says on this topic. And that's because people are trying to do something that neither Jesus nor Paul attempts to do. And that's codify the Bible's teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They're trying to distill down into a simple set of divorces categorically wrong or it's categorically acceptable in these specific instances when it's not as simple as that. That's not how Jesus or the apostles thought about this issue. They think in terms of principles rather than the written code. And just so you know, I think this is the really helpful part of this passage, or at least that's the thing I really want this congregation to come away with as we engage with this text. You know, I recognize that the subject matter that we're dealing with here today may not seem relevant to some of you. I don't know of anyone in here who's knowingly married to an unbeliever, which is one of the topics that Paul addresses here. I don't even know of, if anyone is wrestling with the option of divorce. So this may not seem relevant to you. Or at least it may not seem relevant right now, right? Just given the topic that Paul is addressing. But what I want you to understand is that even though Paul is addressing something that may not seem that pressing for whatever marital situation you may be facing at the moment, that's not to say that there isn't still something of tremendous worth to be discovered here. Because what you're seeing in this passage is how the Apostle Paul thinks through difficult issues. You're seeing the thought process, the logic that he employs as he tackles difficult points of application. And if you can follow what he's doing right here, then you're going to be more than equipped to handle not only as something as, as complex and controversial as divorce and marriage, but you'll be better equipped to think your way through a whole host of other issues as well. If you remember one of the complaints that the Corinthians had against Paul was that his way of communication was too unsophisticated and his content too simple. 
for the more cultured minds of Corinth, which Paul not only said the problem wasn't me, it was you. I couldn't divulge the more in-depth teaching that I had to offer because you weren't ready for it yet. But he also said to the Corinthians, you need to adopt my way of thinking and follow my example as your spiritual father, not the example of these other so-called teachers. Well, my friends, this is what we're getting to see on full display here in this passage. We're getting to watch Paul model for us how true wisdom handles something as complex and controversial as divorce. This is mature Christian thinking on display. This is obviously something that we should be aiming for as Christians. This is something that I most definitely want to see formed in you. This is even why we're in 1 Corinthians, really, to learn how to engage the situations we encounter in the world from a Christian perspective, to learn how to think about cultural issues, about issues in the church even, like Christians. So that's what I want you to pick up from this text, perhaps more than anything else. Not just the ruling that Paul gives on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but the thought process that leads to that ruling. Since it's that thought process that's not only going to help you really understand Paul's ruling, I think more than anything else, but because it will also better equip you to think through a whole host of other difficult issues that you're bound to encounter as a Christian. So what is that thought process? Let's go ahead and read the passage and try to find out. Once again, the passage is 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, To the unmarried and the widows... I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. For how, do you not, how, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul writes this morning's text in response to a fairly specific, and I think it's fair to say rather peculiar situation, or at least peculiar by our standards. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, then you've already, you're pretty familiar with what I'm talking about. The Corinthians have written to Paul asking him to sort out some questions that they have about the proper application of their faith. Uh, In particular, they want him to answer some questions about sex. All in all, there's nothing too unusual about that. Uh, You look out into our own culture and you can see that there's not only a preoccupation with, but a lot of confusion about sex. In light of this, you have a lot of Christians wanting to know what God thinks about this subject. Well, it was no different in Corinth. You have these relatively new converts trying to understand how their faith applies to this very confusing and controversial subject 
And so they're writing to Paul in part to ask him, can you explain this for us? The question appears to arise in part because the church can't seem to agree on how to approach this issue. Again, nothing too unusual there. Like I said just a moment ago, even with Paul's instructions in places like 1 Corinthians, the church still can't seem to agree on how to address these types of issues. What is unusual, however, is the source of their disagreement. They seem to all be agreed on one thing, and that's the fact that the body is more or less inherently bad. It's corrupt. They've taken the gospel to mean that Christ died so that after we've died, we might attain to a kind of purely spiritual existence apart from the body of a kind that's far superior to the existence that we're experiencing right now. What they don't seem to agree on is what this all means for how we are to interact with the body currently. Some seem to be saying, you know, if the body is passing away, then it doesn't really matter what we do with the body since it's a part of this old system of things. It's not what we will be or even what we are in Christ. So you can really eat whatever you want. You can have sex whenever you want and with whomever you want. It doesn't really matter. Others seem to be saying, no, you don't understand. It's because the body is passing away that we need to deny it. You're right, it is no longer a part of who we are or what we will be in Christ. That's why we need to stop indulging its cravings. It's this second party that appears to be writing to Paul, apparently thinking that he's on their side. And they're saying to him, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If you can't tell, that's more of an assertion than it is a question. But the idea seems to be that they're explaining their position to Paul. Perhaps they're even telling on this other party, telling Paul, you know, look at what they're doing over here. They're going around and visiting prostitutes. So could you explain it to them, Paul? Could you tell them that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Already you can probably sense the complexity of this situation. I mean, what what would you say to something like that. How would you respond if someone wrote that kind of a letter to you? I mean, on the one hand, it's not okay to go and visit prostitutes. But on the other, neither is it okay to go around acting like all sexual activity is bad. They're both wrong in this situation, right? Neither one has it completely right. Again, there's some nuance in this. So how do you handle this? Well, the way Paul handles this is by first striking at the root of their problem, and that's their theology. He recognizes that the thought that's giving rise to both kinds of errors is this misconception about the body. They both think the body is bad, and that's what's causing them to fall off on either side of this very imbalanced approach to this issue. So Paul starts by addressing that, and he does this by speaking to the sexually immoral group. He says, you've got it wrong. The body is not going to be destroyed. It's going to be raised from the dead. So what you do with your body does matter because it's been redeemed by Christ. He even goes so far as to say that to join oneself to to a prostitute is to commit a sin against the body since they're taking the members that have been redeemed both by and for Christ and placing them into the service of a prostitute. There's not only a kind of defilement that's occurring when that happens, but it's to take the members of Christ and to, in a sense, place them outside of Christ 
by placing them under the authority of someone else. This only raises another set of questions. If sex with a prostitute sins against the body by taking the members of Christ and placing them into the service of someone else, well, then what about sex with one's spouse? Is that a sin against the body as well? What if one spouse is an unbeliever? I mean, surely Paul wouldn't approve of that, right? To take the members of Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit, according to chapter 6, verse 19, and then join that to a pagan? Surely there's got to be something wrong with that, right? Can you see where all this is going? As Paul corrects the theology of the one group, it leads to a whole host of other questions for the second group. And it's those questions that Paul is now addressing in chapter 7. And so far, what Paul has explained to this group is that, no, it's not wrong to have physical relations with your spouse. If anything, you should be doing that with them, because if you don't, you're going to open them up to the very kinds of temptations that I'm telling this first group that they need to avoid in chapter 6. Again, sexual immorality is bad, Paul's explained. It's unprofitable. And so because it's bad, married couples really should have sex as a means of staving off sexual temptation. Now the questions that we're coming to are, what about the single Christian, though? Suppose they're struggling with sexual temptation. What should they do? Should they remain single? Or would it be better to get married? What about if I divorce my spouse? Is, is that an option? Suppose I want to dedicate my body to Christ alone. So I get what you're saying. I, I need to tend to the sexual desires of my spouse for the sake of their purity. But then what if I got divorced? What if I let them go so that they could get married to someone else and have their sexual desires fulfilled there while I keep my body free from all sexual relationships? Is that okay? Is that permissible? And for that matter, what about those of us who are married to unbelievers? How does all this work for us? Is it different then? I mean, maybe, you know, should we take these two principles in chapter 6 and chapter 7, that it's wrong to join the members of Christ to a prostitute, and that it's also wrong to deny one's spouse their sexual desires, should we take that to mean that we should probably separate from our unbelieving spouses on account of their uncleanness. In light of what we discussed over the past couple of passages, these questions are all very reasonable questions to ask. Are they not? So how do we answer them? How does one apply Christian doctrine to all these various and very nuanced situations? That's what Paul is tackling in this passage. And in order to understand his answer to these questions. I want you to make two general observations about the answer that he's going to supply here this week. That's all we're going to do this week. We're going to look at the, these two general observations about the answer that he supplies here. And then we'll come back and sort of zoom in on the specifics of this text next week to see how this thought process applies to the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage more specifically. The first observation that I want you to make is this. Number one, Paul is not attempting to offer a comprehensive answer to this issue 
of marriage, divorce, and remarriage in this passage. Let me say that one more time. Paul is not attempting to offer a comprehensive approach to marriage, divorce, and remarriage in this passage. I think it's very important that you understand this as we deal with this subject. As Christians, of course, we want to deal faithfully with the Word of God. And we want to deal faithfully with the Word of God because we want to be obedient to the Word of God. Uh, In fact, we were just talking about this yesterday in our monthly book study. This is one of the marks of a Christian. Mankind is divided into two camps, right? Those who listen to the Word of God and those who don't. That's because the Word of God is God's disclosure of Himself, of who He is and what He's doing in history and what He desires for mankind based off of what He's doing in history. In particular, it's God's invitation, we said, to mankind to participate in His future reign over the earth through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. God's people have responded to this invitation. And this means that naturally they're going to have a very high regard for God's Word. God's Word says... This is who God is, and this is what he wants you to do. And since they've become to believe in his word by faith, they want to respond to what he tells them. This high regard for God's word then hits another level once God's people understand that God has issued some very precise instructions for how he wants them to live in, in, in his word, right? Deuteronomy 4.2 declares, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. If you want to understand why evangelicals contend so fiercely over things like inspiration and biblical inerrancy, guys, this is a major reason why. It's because once you start to take part of the Bible and say, this is not the word of God, right? By implication, you're telling the Christian, and so this is not binding for you. And quite frankly, that's the way of the devil, is it not? To say, has God really said? Or to say, God has not said? When God has said? It's to mimic the very lie that damned the human race at the outset. This is serious stuff that we're dealing here with. We can't be flippant about the word of God when God says explicitly, I want you to do just exactly as I tell you. But that being said, one of the things that we must understand is that we are not being faithful to the word of God when we make it say more than what it says. I like to point this out fairly frequently because I think it tends to be overlooked. But Deuteronomy 4.2 not only says do not take away from God's commands, it also says and do not add to them. This was part of the mistake that the Pharisees made on things like Sabbath, right? They made those commands more restrictive than what God intended them to be. They added to the word of God. And do you know why they did it? At least the more sincere ones, men like Paul, do you know why they did it? It was because of their great zeal for the word of God. It wasn't because they were were, uh, going to be sure. They wanted to make sure that they did just exactly what God told them. Of course, the problem with this zeal was that it actually caused them to distort the word of God by making it say more than it actually said. Friends, we have to be careful not to do that. We have to recognize that in our zeal to be precise in our obedience to God, that we may unintentionally make the word of God more precise than it's intended to be. 
And that's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is expressed in showing enough restraint in our interaction with God's word to say the Bible doesn't give us specific direction on this particular issue. We don't honor the word of God by forcing it to say more than it actually says for the sake of simplicity or for some supposed sense of clarity. A big part of arriving at that kind of precision is understanding the intended scope of the author's application in a, in a particular text. Meaning, if we say the author intended to address this topic, like topic A, when in actuality they weren't intending to address that at all, they were addressing a different topic, they were naturally going beyond what's been written. And we're making the text say something it doesn't mean to say. If you want to understand what I mean, I might give you an example turning to this uh, classical piece that I was listening to with my son a couple weeks back. Uh, it was an operatic piece uh, written in Italian. So I couldn't actually understand what the lyrics of the piece were. And, uh, but I knew that uh, this piece was preceded by a piece about Icarus. And so when the next piece was entitled The Fall, I assumed it was referring to the fall of Icarus. I got curious, though, and I went and I looked the piece up. And you know what? Didn't have anything to do with Icarus. The lyrics were taken from Dante's Inferno. And the composer was talking about a fall from the sky. He was talking about flight, but he was trying to tie in themes about man's attempt to fly and how this relates to man's attempts to reach the heavens. And I could sense some of that at the time, and I talked about that with my son. But I tied it all to Icarus specifically when Icarus had nothing to do with it. So here's my son weeping about Icarus. And there's a sense in which, while the emotions were real, they were built on a lie. It came through a misunderstanding of that piece of music. Listen, we must avoid making that kind of mistake with the biblical text, right? Well, again, what you need to understand right here is that Paul is not attempting to provide a comprehensive approach to this issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so any attempts to make this passage say that go beyond the meaning of the text. I think you see this bear itself out at a couple of points. First, it comes out in these phrases, not I, but the Lord, and I, not the Lord, in verses 10 and 12. Paul says in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then he says in verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Just so you know, when Paul says that, he's not attempting to suggest that what he has to say is merely good advice, sort of his opinion, whereas what the Lord says is command. That's not what's going on there. No, he's referring to the fact that there is direct teaching from Jesus on this subject in places like Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And while Jesus doesn't address all the specific issues that the Corinthians are asking about, this would be Paul's judgment on that issue. Just so you know, that is an authoritative judgment, by the way. It's a spirit-inspired judgment. And so while the command doesn't come directly from Jesus, it's still completely authoritative. So, Jesus spoke on divorce, verse 10, right? We see that Matthew 5, Matthew 19, he gave a command there. But he didn't really address the whole believer married to a non-believer thing when he said that. Even though, by the way, think about this, even though, by the way, the thing the Corinthians are wondering about 
is whether or not one should divorce their unbelieving spouse in verses 12 through 16. I mean, think about that. Isn't that interesting? Jesus gave a ruling on divorce in places like Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And even though he doesn't qualify those statements in any way, as to say, right, but I'm only speaking about believers married to believers here. He doesn't do that. Even still, Paul reads it that way. What this shows us is that Paul was paying attention to context and intent when he encountered these types of statements. Friends, if you want to put it this way, if you want to put it in legal terms, Paul wasn't a textualist. You know, you have some Supreme Court judges, for instance, who are textualists, which means they read according to the letter of the law, disregarding the supposed intent of the creators of the law when it was written. Paul didn't read the scriptures like that. Instead, he paid attention to intent. He understood that the issue that Jesus was addressing was what you and I might call no-fault divorce. The Pharisees wanted to know, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answers this by saying that's not how marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a permanent institution. To divorce someone simply because you don't like them anymore, there's no difference between that and adultery. Call it whatever you want, right? In your heart, you're still breaking the covenant you made with your spouse. Jesus wasn't attempting to address every possible kind of divorce in that scenario, just the one who's using the provision that God made a provision that God made out of the hardness of man's heart, by the way, because God understood that they would divorce, whether he permitted it or not. He's attempting to address this issue to the one who's using that provision, which God made to restrict the evil of the heart, to more or less legalize their adultery. Again, Jesus is after the legalists. He's after the textualists who want to twist God's word to justify their evil desires rather than pay attention to intent. He's not really trying to answer every specific instance of divorce. Again, this passage, 1 Corinthians 7, is proof of that. Paul tells us here that Jesus did not address what to do about the believer married to the unbeliever, even though ostensibly we might be tempted to assume he did. In fact, what's really interesting is that there's good reason to believe that the famous exception clause that occurs in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 is even a further indication of this point. For reasons that I'll try to explain in a moment, it would appear that Jesus anticipated another type of audience when he made that statement who were divorcing for a different set of reasons, and he was trying to modify his command so as not to make this group think that he was sweeping them up with this statement when he said this. He was trying to tell them but I'm not talking about this kind of divorce. And just so you know, this kind of divorce uh, is probably not the kind that you're thinking of. We'll get there again in just a minute. Just hang tight. The point I'm trying to make right now is that Paul wasn't a textualist. Jesus wasn't a textualist. They both paid attention to intent in their interpretation of the law. Now, the reason why that matters is because if we're paying attention to intent in this text then I think it's probably fair to say that Paul's intent is not to address every kind of divorce either. This is the second element that I think we need to see to observe that Paul is not attempting to provide a comprehensive answer for marriage, divorce, or remarriage. It's that Paul has a very specific kind of divorce in mind here. In fact, the kind of divorce that he's attempting to address 
is the one that's being driven by this desire to keep the body free from any encumbrance in its service to Christ. In other words, if I could put it this way, the whole issue of remarriage, that's not even really on Paul's agenda here. I think he probably does indicate that remarriage is definitely permissible based on what he says in verses 8 and 9, but even still, that's not really the point, is it? He's not addressing a people who, like the Pharisees, are seeking a divorce for the sake of remarriage. No, he's addressing a people who are seeking a divorce in order to stay single. Even the instructions in verses 8 and 9, that's really Paul telling some people not you're free to get married, but actually, no, you need to get remarried. He's saying, you shouldn't stay single if this is how you're handling it. This is where I think we completely misunderstand this passage. It's taking a, a completely different direction than what we're accustomed to. Most of the time, what we wonder when people ask this question is, can I divorce my spouse? That's not the way the Corinthians are looking at this. They were wondering, should I divorce my spouse? Must I divorce my spouse? We think in terms of our freedoms, they were thinking in terms of their obligations. Or at least this particular group was. It was different, obviously, for the group we encountered back in chapter 6. And incidentally, that is the other group that Jesus seems to be addressing in Matthew 5 and 19 as well. He's talking to a group of people who, like the Corinthians here in chapter 7, are wondering not, can I divorce my spouse on account of their infidelity? But based on the Old Testament's teaching on how to deal with adultery, they're wondering, must I? And Jesus is telling that group, I'm not talking about you when I say this to the Pharisees. Your motives are different than theirs. If you're divorcing because you think you're compelled to based on the Old Testament law, that's a different issue entirely than what I'm addressing right now. Again, friends, I know this probably sounds confusing. I know this probably sounds really complicated. But that's exactly my point. The motives and factors that drive something like divorce are incredibly nuanced and complex. There is no one-size-fits-all answer to this issue. And the biblical writers didn't try to treat it that way. And so we can't come away trying to codify the Bible's teaching on this subject and say, well, divorce is permissible in A, B, and C instances, but not in X, Y, Z instances, because before you know it, you'll encounter an A, Y situation or a BX situation where there's this overlap between what seems permissible and what's not. And the question then becomes, so then how do we navigate those types of issues? If we can't codify the Bible's teaching on this subject, how can we manage to maneuver our way through the nuances of an issue as incredibly complex as divorce? And this leads us to our second observation for this morning. And just so you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time here since I'm mostly going to be working my way through the implications of this concept next week. Observation number two. Paul arrives at his conclusions by working through a series of greater and lesser priorities. Again, let me say that one more time. Paul arrives at his conclusions by working through a series of greater and lesser priorities. We saw back in chapter 6 that Paul began to speak about sexual immorality less in, in, in more, uh, more in terms of uh, 
you know, what's profitable and unprofitable, less in terms of what is permissible and not permissible. That's probably the best way to understand his thought process here as well. That's not to say that everything that we encounter in this passage is strictly optional. Again, there are some absolutes in this passage. But the point is that at various points in this text, you'll see Paul say, do this, but then if this happens, you should do that instead. And he'll give a principle to explain his reasoning. This is where you begin to see this idea that the right of course, the right course of action often depends on the situation. He says, for instance, verses 8 and 9, if you can be single, good, right? But if you can't exercise self-control, then get married. And again, just so you understand in context, that's not you can get married, it's you should get married. There's a kind of an obligation there. He says, verses 10 and 11, a woman should not separate from her husband, but if she does, then she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. He says, verses 12 through 16, don't divorce your unbelieving spouse, but if they want to let let you go, you can go. You're not bound. Do you see this? This This is similar to the idea that it's wrong for anyone but the priest to eat the bread, except perhaps when one of the king's men comes on a mission and needs something to eat. A person shouldn't work on Sabbath, but if they're a priest, they can. A person should keep their oaths, but if they make a rash oath, then they should break their oath. So where is the reasoning for all these various conclusions coming from? What principles is Paul employing here to, uh, to, to navigate through these incredibly complex situations? How can he say, for instance, that a person shouldn't divorce, but then if their unbelieving spouse wants to, that they should let it happen? Why should divorce suddenly become permissible in that instance? That's what we're going to begin to explore as we dig into the details of this passage next week. And what we discover there will not only help you better understand what the Bible's position on marriage, divorce, and remarriage is, but I think perhaps even more significantly, it will help you think more and more like a mature Christian. I'd encourage you to be here for part two of this passage as we discuss the principles of marriage, divorce, and remarriage next week. In the meantime, let's pray.